I'm on the ride of a lifetime. I'm on a ship that's sailing to uncharted shore, and I. Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets biblical Christianity face-to-face. Actually, I changed that. I should say where Christian fruits meet religious nuts face-to-face. But in any case, I'm your host, and I'm standing here with Jason. Jason, tell us about yourself. Hi, I'm Jason. I uh, became acquainted with Heart of the Matter through a friend, uh, David, out of Lehigh, uh, very inspired by the program. I called in one evening and asked Sean uh, how I could be saved. And uh, right there on the program, uh, Mr. McCraney took me through the sinner's prayer and brought me into Christ. Praise God. Praise God. Good to meet you, my brother. (laughs) You too. Anything that you'd like to share with the viewing audience? Nothing that would top what you do. Uh, Any suggestion for people who are seeking truth and are maybe having difficulty, what to do with their heart? how to approach the Lord, anything like that? Open your heart uh, to what Sean has to say and uh, resist going to the fridge. And <laughs> <laughs> Great. Thanks, my brother. Thank you, Sean. All right, thanks so much. All right, listen, uh, we have three books that are of benefit in different ways. I Was a Born Again Mormon is the first one. If My Kingdom Were of This World, Then My Servants Were Fight. And then where Mormonism meets Biblical Christianity face-to-face and A to Z doctrinal compendium. We also have four music CDs, 57 songs that cover a total of 136 passages taken directly from the New King James. They go from our ears to the heart. Take a look. If you don't use uh, iTunes, you can go to www.hotm.tv and order there. If you're poor and you cannot afford to buy the CDs, uh, write us, email us at Sean at Aletheia Media, and uh, Derek and Danita will get them out to you free of charge. Um, uh, We just do it on the honor system. So either iTunes, hotm.tv, or you can write us and say I'm poor and would love the CDs. Listen, uh, also I just was notified by Seth that uh, you can go on the website at hotm.tv and you can see right there there's a link to click and go directly to iTunes. He put that up there. So we're trying to make it as easy as possible for you and uh, appreciate everybody's efforts in doing that. I've recently learned that people are writing us emails and uh, right now we are only about... Thanks to Cassidy, we were 2,000 emails behind. We are now only about 420 emails behind. Uh, And anyway, that people email us and they ask questions. Now they'll just say, it'll say sam at at gmail. 
and Sam will say, hey, Sean, what do you think about this? And so I write back what I think, not knowing, just taking them for their word, and then they go and they take what we say and put it on other social media outlets like Disgracebook and their blogs and even some church websites to mock and picket what we're doing. Uh, and these people are fellow Christians. The other day I was sitting in a public place and I was studying and a friend walked up and he said, hey, I hear you've been having an online dialogue with, gives me the guy's name, I didn't know who the guy was, and so I went back into the emails and looked and uh, what's disturbing is that I was never told and I'm never told by these people who write in Sam at Gmail what their intentions are. They just ask a question and so I, I just give them the quickest answer possible that I can type out without any type of couching. And sometimes answers do need to be couched in context. But if you just ask something outright and you want a quick answer and you give it, that can be taken out of context and cause uh, difficulty. So uh, they use it to critique the ministry and my person in a public forum. And this is just, it's, 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 feet that are swift to run to mischief is what it is. And the stuff is becoming more and more the way of, of many, unfortunately, of many Christians. And um, as I reflected upon it, a song came to my head from one of my favorite song uh, writers. His name is uh, Brett Gerwitz. And it, I'm going to sing it to you, just the first stanza. It says, here's the story of an honest man losing religion climbing the pulpit steps before an eager congregation. And while praying came a wicked inspiration, brothers, sisters, this is what he said, dearly beloved, dearly beloved, dearly beloved, I can't relate, I can't relate to you, I can't relate to you. Uh, I'm not singing this because I think I'm superior to anybody, I'm not. But I can't relate to people, Christian and not, who are constantly trying to put other believers on trial for how they believe and what their faith is and, and, and what they think. We're always having to have our faith sized up and our doctrine sized up. And people who always are looking to segregate and separate uh, believers in the body rather than bring us together and kind of just let us think and believe as we want. So if you fit that description, you're welcome in my life as a brother or sister, at our church even, but understand I cannot relate to you. And with that, how about a moment from the word? And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. Now what I'm about to say I want to preface with, I believe every person in whatever country they're living in, if you're an American, you have the right, inalienable right to get involved in political things and to, and to do what you want as an American. To be uh, against guns, to be for guns, to be a, a Republican, to be a Democrat. As an American, those are the rights. We haven't talked about this in a while relative to American uh, Christianity, uh, but politics, and I just wanna take and read a few things from the Bible relative to the Christian's approach to government. Uh, as mentioned many times in the past, we live at a time when American Christians are generally known more for what we stand against than what we stand for. If we asked educated people who are not believers, not Christians, if we ask them, describe the general characteristics of a faithful evangelical Christian in America today, I'm sure that we would hear something about political conservatism, anti-abortion, anti or against homosexuals and homosexual marriage, uh, anti-stem cell research maybe, pro-prayer in school, often uh, some unbridled criticism of President Obama, uh, and I'm sure other things would be mentioned as well, things like Tea Party, Moral Majority, Christian Coalition, Christian Voice, Eagle Forum, and ironically, we might also find many people describing who are not believers, American Christians, as being highly supportive of protecting our borders and militias and the things like that. 
in the end, hopefully, somebody might say, and American Christians believe in Jesus. But, you know, the irony is Jesus did not address any of these social ills tied to Christianity today, especially from the political point of view. Neither did his apostles. As the author and finisher of our faith, what we believe in, which is Jesus came and lived and died and shed his blood, and we are redeemed by faith on him, I don't see how that meshes in with all these other things that go along with what has become American evangelicalism today. Uh, he, the Lord didn't, certainly didn't lobby or fight against government, and if, he was, and if we were ever gonna fight against the government that was corrupt, they would have fought against the Romans. You know, but he didn't do that. He submitted to injustice, uh, and he explained very clearly, if my kingdom was of this world, then my servants would fight. Then my, then my Christian uh, believers in America would go out and fight in the streets against these things. In 1 Timothy, Paul says something to believers about the attitude we ought to have for those who rule over us. He says, I exhort therefore that, first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That doesn't sound like a license to attack, you know, our president or the leaders. We might not agree with what they say and do. I certainly don't agree with probably any politician. But, it does, but as Christians, we're supposed to take a, a higher uh, stance. Uh, even if our president was uh, President Romney, I would not besmirch him as the president of the country. He's the president. Uh, we refer to Obama as our president. And we do this here, and it says, this is good and acceptable in the sight of our God. If you go to Romans 13, we read these instructions to believers relative to government. It says, let every soul be subject unto higher powers. Listen to this. For there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever, therefore, resists the power, resists the ordinance of God. And they that shall resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. In other words, what he's saying is, the people who run things, while they might ideologically be different than us, they might be pro-abortion or or anti-gun, or any of that liberal stuff, if they're in power, it's, it says here, be subject to them, because God has put them in that position. And we humbly just, we go through, we, we, we do what's gonna be said, and as Christians, I'm just talking about, not as Americans, not as South Americans, not as Europeans, I'm just talking about as Christians, okay? And he goes on and says, do that which is good, and you won't be afraid of him, and you'll have the praise of the same. For he is a minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is a minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore, you must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. For for this cause pay ye tribute. Also, it's talking about taxes. You know, there's, there's Christians who say, no, we don't, we don't pay taxes. He says, pay tribute. For they are God's ministers, he says, attending continually upon this very thing. Render, therefore, all to their dues. Tribute to whom tribute is due. Custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. My point, maybe it's time, and I'm saying this in preface to 2016, that Christians back away from all things political I mean from your Christian perspective, let me reiterate that, and things that are bent on social reform, and maybe it's time we spend our time and money sharing Jesus more and more. I have frightened believers tell me, but we have to fight for our rights to share Jesus or else that right will be taken from us. The way I see it, 
we obey and submit to the laws of the land and the kings placed over us. If it comes to the point where we have to choose between God and the laws of the land, we choose God and we suffer for that. Whatever the consequences the law has put upon us might be. That's what they did in the early church. That's why Christians were fed to the lions. So until we do, until that time, we don't fight. We do not war against flesh and blood. We pray, we submit, and in Jesus' name, we honor the kings and authorities that have been placed over us. And with that, let's have a word of prayer. Father, uh, we seek humbly your spirit and to put to death the flesh in which we are wrapped in and encased in in this life. Uh, help us to grow in the spirit and to walk by the spirit and to live by the spirit and to judge all things and read all things by the spirit which is good and truth and, and love and patience and long-suffering and temperance and all of those things. Were, and w with those things in place, there is no law. So we pray, Lord, that you'll be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. I have learned over uh, the years in talking with LDS people that there's a period, usually in a discussion, where people kind of zone out. Uh, often it's right at the beginning, they, they, they stop hearing what is being said. Uh, and it can happen uh, when there's too much information being presented too. It's understandable. We have so much going around in our heads that when we're confronted with something that challenges our worldviews and our traditions and our preconceived notions, we automatically put up walls and we just say, no, I just, I can't go on any further. And it, ha it happens to me, it happens to everybody. When we're being invaded by information that causes us discomfort, we put up the walls and we can justify those walls as even being of God. Uh, you know, the LDS are, are known for, oh no, no, I'm feeling an evil spirit. You're sharing that Jesus, that you're saved by Jesus and by grace through his blood. And they'll say, oh no, no, I'm, I'm feeling an evil spirit when you preach that to me. It's because their preconceived notions and how they've been taught are being challenged and they feel bad. And so they say that's that, that evil spirit. I've, I've also discovered that most of us do not really hear what a challenger is saying. Instead, we are formulating arguments in opposition of what the challenger is saying while they're speaking. So with all this in mind, I'm gonna approach our first part of the topic, when does the Bible say Jesus will return? In a rather unusual way, are you ready? I'm gonna start off by offering you to consider, keep the walls down, another way to read the book of Revelation. That's all I'm gonna do. It's gonna be a very simple presentation to you right now. Just consider reading Revelation in a different way. So let's begin. Who was the book of Revelation written to? Why was it written and then delivered to them specifically? When the recipients received it, did they read it and say, well, these writings don't have anything to do with us. They have to do with the church 2,000 or more years from now. Or did they say, wow, this has to do with us. We better take what is being said here seriously. Ask yourself those questions. So let's put this all together and examine the book of Revelation from a very simple perspective. I'm going to call it the bookend perspective. Okay? I'm not gonna cover what's in the middle and all that stuff. I'm gonna cover four or five verses in the first chapter, four or five verses in the last chapter. The bookends, what introduces the book of Revelation, all that other stuff in the middle, and then what ends it, okay? First of all, let's touch on the date that the book of Revelation was written. There's an argument, some say it was written before 70 AD. I tend to look at it that way. And then there's others who say it was written by John in 95 AD. 95 AD would mean it was written after the destruction of Rome. I mean, the destruction of Jerusalem by Romans. And so if that's the case, then we would think it has application way out or out into the future because the destruction of Jerusalem had already happened. But let's just say, for argument's sake, that everything occurred was written in Revelation in 95 AD. The destruction of Jerusalem, 70 AD, 15 years later, let's just go with what many believers say today, and it was written in 95. Open up to chapter 1, verse 1. 
This is what it says. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, which God gave unto Jesus Christ, to show unto his servants the things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of all the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. So the word automatically in the first verse of Revelation, the introductory uh, passage, it says that shortly, shortly, he, these things will come to pass, all right? The word is tachos in the Greek, and it means in a brief period of time, all right? It does not allow for 100, 1,000, or 2,000 years, but a short time span. It is only used 15 times in the New Testament, and it always refers to a quick period of time. So in the very introduction of the book of Revelation, the Lord gives the revelation that God gives him, which was to show his servants who are alive at that time things which must shortly come to pass. Now, I don't know about you, but this pas passage causes me to think of two things. Either when scripture says shortly, it doesn't mean shortly. And the readers of the revelation who received it were fooled. They read shortly, but it didn't mean shortly. And we're still waiting for shortly to happen. Uh, and because we're still waiting for shortly to happen, we have taken the contents of Revelation and Daniel and Ezekiel, and we have reapplied them and reconfigured them to make them make sense to where we are now. Because if it didn't happen then, we have to reconfigure what it says. Or it meant exactly what it said. And those who read it at the time and to whom it was written for believed what it said, trusted in what it said, that it was true and reliable and trustworthy from God's mouth to Jesus' ear to John's pen. They read it, they heard it, okay? Simple as that, you decide. Let's move on. The third verse, first chapter. Two, the next, there's one verse, then go to verse uh, three. Ready? Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things that are written herein, for the time is at hand. Three verses, twice we are told, shortly these things are going to happen, the time is at hand. In the Greek, that word for at hand is ingus, and it means within reach, within reach, at hand. You know, it's right at hand. The phone is at hand. It's within reach. Three verses into Revelation, and we've already had two warnings to the reader at that time for the things written in Revelation to occur was short, at hand. Well, who is this going to? Who is going to be reading this Revelation? Who was it written to, and who was Jesus telling that the time was at hand. Let's go to verse four, we read, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, okay? Those churches had actual people in them. And um, those people were trusting in the actual words that John had copied from that revelation seven times at least and given to those seven churches. They got them, they read those words, okay? Or no, you know? See, this is the point in the discussion. A great majority of believers today are ready. Right now, they've closed up, they've put up walls because they've heard their pastors preaching for 2,000 years, get ready, he's coming. It's coming around the bend, get ready. Get yourself prepared. He, we, we, it's any time, it's coming any time. I remember when I studied with Chuck Smith, I, I was, had to listen to his teachings over the period of 20 years, and I listened to his teachings in 1972, 1974. It can't be more than three more years. It can't be. It's got to be within three more years. We have Harold Camping putting up billboards. It's going to happen on this date. We have people saying there's blood moons. It's going to happen. We've been saying it every millennia. We say it all the time, and we're preparing people. Get ready. Get ready, okay? Stay with me just in Revelation. So right now, some of you are saying, yeah, 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 but there's so much in Revelation that hasn't happened. What you just are just, you've been, you've been taught this. 
Listen to what the word says, not what men say the word says. So, was Jesus wrong? Was the time not at hand? Were the things that he gave in this revelation not shortly to come to pass? Let's move on. Jump to verse 7 of chapter 1, which says, yet again, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. Oh, that hasn't happened yet, Sean McCraney, so you're wrong. Stay with me. And they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Well, we know that hasn't happened. From this passage, we know that what verses 2 and 3 are talking about, 1 and 3, are uh, about happening soon is Jesus coming. We know that from this verse, that it's talking about him coming in the clouds. The time is at hand, shortly to be. He comes in the clouds, every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him will see him, and all the kindreds of the earth shall wail. So, would you agree with me so far, or am I wrong? It's just real simple. Now, verse seven also says that he will come in the clouds just as when he left and the angel said to the disciples, why are you staring up into the clouds? Behold, the Son of Man will return in the same way that he left, in a similar fashion, not in the same way. And then we also learn from uh, uh, verse seven that every eye will see him. Now, if we take that line, every eye will see him, by itself, we know in 70 AD, every eye certainly didn't see him, so therefore he must not have returned yet. We don't have any world record of, of every eye seeing Jesus come, right? So, not so fast. When we take scripture, we don't find one and say, okay, that's what it means. We take the whole Bible. Now, we have to take into account Hebrews 9.28. What does it say? It says, so Christ was also once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them, quote, that look for him shall he appear the second time. Again, those that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. By including this passage in Hebrews in our understanding of what it says in Revelation 7, uh, verse 1, chapter 1, verse 7, we have to say that when Jesus says every eye will see him, it means every eye that's looking for him. Otherwise, Hebrews is wrong. So we take the whole of scripture, what it says, and then we know every eye that is looking for Jesus will see him. That's what it has to mean, or we have scripture that's wrong. Then Revelation 1, 7 says, Behold, he comes with clouds, and every eye shall see him. Listen. And they also which pierced him, and they also. Okay, my wife pointed this out to me today. She says, because the line says, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. We know that the line, and every eye shall see him, doesn't mean every eye, or Jesus wouldn't say, and also them which pierced him. He would just say, and every eye shall see him. He wouldn't add, and also those who pierced him. So what he's saying is every eye who's looking for him will see him, and also those who pierced him, those, maybe whether they were looking for him or not, were gonna see him and realize what they had done. We have to take all of scripture. Good job, Mary. So we know that those who participated in his death, who were alive at the time of his return, we know that what time frame we're looking at now. It was those who helped pierce him who were still alive. Now, futurists who believe Jesus is still coming will say, oh, well, listen, we've all pierced him. We're all guilty of piercing him because of our sin. But that's not so. The Bible never says we pierced him. It always refers to those who did the actual physical crucif uh, crucifixion of him. Finally, verse 7 says, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Now, all we got to do is look to the Greek. And all phule. And so King James translates all kindreds of the earth. I don't know what that means. Everybody who's related? Or does it mean, fule could also mean tribes, as in the 12 tribes, all the tribes. And it says of the earth, it doesn't say of the cosmos, which is in the entire world. It says of the G and all tribes, all 12 tribes of this G, of this area, of this country. That's what you could read that as. The King James translate, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail 
because of him. But if you look at, you can look at other translations and it says all the tribes, the 12 tribes, if you want, of the G of the local country will see him, okay? So just to reiterate context, verse 11 reminds us of it. With Jesus saying to John, verse 11 of chapter one, I am the alpha and omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book and send it. Send it unto seven churches which are in Asia, which is, uh, which is comparable to modern day Turkey today. Unto, and he lists them, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So all of those churches got the revelation and they've read this introduction. What are they supposed to think? I would, if I was in a church, I'd say, honey, it's happening shortly. The time's at hand. Be ready, okay? Now, what were those house church believers thinking? Let's leave chapter one of, of Revelation and let's go to the back of the book, the other bookend, okay? He's given all kinds of apocryphal information and there, is so, there are so many different ways to read that stuff. And someday maybe we'll get to, to try to do it, but we're not gonna do it on the show. Everything in between has been taken and assigned a future date by believers today. And it has been received in the churches today and going backward as not having occurred, but if it did not occur, why is Jesus reiterating to the seven churches, get ready, be prepared, okay? In the last chapter of Revelation, John continues to write the things he saw. At this point, we would have to agree that the revelation has been choked full of imagery. Christians post-Christ resurrection were involved in spiritual warfare, and so the language was extremely apocryphal in nature and, it, and, and is speaking to images and solutions and advice that is discovered in the realms of the spirit for believers of that day to understand of what's going on. We cannot possibly think we can sufficiently comprehend the book outside of the obvious that Jesus came and conquered all and, and it was given to hang on amidst suffering for his cause and that he was coming back for them. That is what he was saying in this. So let's go to specifics. Chapter 22, the book in at verse six, John writes, after he's written all this stuff, 22 chapters later, and he said to me, these sayings that John has been writing are faithful and true, faithful. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. Again, the Lord God sent the prophets an angel to show the servants things that must shortly be done. Because this is at the end of Revelation, I take it to mean that all the things in between chapter one and 22 must shortly be done. That's what he says in the last chapter. There's the word takeos again, and it means speedily. It means nearby. The next verse, seven, a repeat of what he said in the first chapter. Behold, I come quickly. He repeats this. The Lord repeats this to John. Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he who are in the seven churches that keeps the sayings of the prophecy of this book. And again from the Greek, I come without delay is what that means. There's no delay. Verse 10, listen carefully, folks, as John writes, and he, say to me, and he says to me, seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. Don't seal this up, John. The time is at hand. Now listen, futurists will say, well, you know, in Daniel, Daniel says the same thing. The time is at hand. And so we obviously the things Daniel said didn't happen quickly, so that's just the way the Lord speaks. No, no, no. Because in Daniel's prophecy, Daniel was told, seal this up. The time is at hand, but seal this, okay? But here in Revelation, the Lord says, seal not these sayings, for the time is at hand. Keep it open, because now it's gonna happen. You get it? The time at hand means nigh. Two verses away. We've read five, we've read six. Two verses away, Jesus says, uh, and behold, I come quickly. I mean, verse 12 and my reward is with me to give every man according to his work shall be. Again, he reiterates, behold, I come quickly. 
And then after warning the readers there in the seven churches about messing with the contents of the revelation that John had written, we read from John in the second to the last verse, the bookend of bookends, he, meaning Jesus, which testified these sayings said, surely I come quickly, amen. And then John adds of his own writing, even so, come Lord Jesus. All right, so four reminders in the opening chapter of Revelation that he was coming shortly and quickly, four reminders at the end of that revelation, it's singular, given to seven churches, telling them, I'm coming quickly, I'm at hand, don't seal this prophecy up. Why haven't the majority of believers read these simple Bible verses and accepted them as true, but have instead been preaching Revelation in a way that says, we gotta get ready for his return. We've gotta be ready. Now listen, we do have to be ready for his return, but not in the corporate sense. We are ready spiritually. What did his return mean to somebody who died yesterday? What did it mean to my grandparents who died 20 years ago? What did his second coming mean to someone who died 200 years ago, 500, 1500, 2000 years ago? Well, close to 2000. It, it is meant they have had their second coming. That it, so we have to be prepared to meet Jesus in the air. We die and we meet him. That's our second coming. I'm gonna reiterate that promise and that principle, but we have altogether missed what Jesus and his disciples said about his coming and believing that he is yet to arrive. We've created a series of fictions fit with all kinds of ideas. We have sold books. We, I mean, there have been movies produced. Uh, what, what's, it, what's it called? Left Behind series. People read that stuff. Just stick with me. That's all I'm asking. You can say, oh, no way. But I just gave you a little sample from the book of Revelation of context and what it was. Wait till next week when we go and we start showing you what Jesus was saying in Matthew 23 and 24 about his return. When the apostles come to him and say, Lord, when are all these things gonna happen that you've been talking about and scaring everybody with? And what is the sign of thy coming? And what will be the end of the world, the King James says. And he lays it out for you. And I can tell you, when we're done with that, you're gonna say, I'm convinced, if you give me a chance. All right, let's open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413, 801-590-8413. While the operators are clearing your calls, please remember that we're attempting to hold a conference uh, here in the state of Utah, February of 2015. We emailed uh, the major players in the state of Utah uh, with the announcement, uh, all the major players, not one of them is, has responded. That was three, four weeks, three weeks ago, whatever. We, so we don't expect help from the local churches. Uh, I'm on their blacklist, I guess. Uh, but we wanna hold this conference. We are in contact with, I got an email here actually. Uh, let me just say, it says from uh, Lisa. It says, Greg Boyd, Woodland Hills Church, St. Paul, Minnesota, open theist. John Piper, pastor, she thinks, Calvinist and Roger Olson, professor at Baylor Seminary, Arminian theologian. We are gonna forward our invitation to them, let them know the specifics and try to get them. So anybody you can think of that way, please let us know, but take a look. Phone number is 801-590-8413, 801-590-8413. Got a blog to recommend to you, noapologiesallowed.wordpress.com. Why am I recommending it to you? Because the guy who uh, writes it, he promoted me. <laughs> that doesn't happen very often. And uh, he's got a whole bunch of entries, actually, a bunch of them. And we see eye to eye on a lot of factors. So consider noapologiesallowed.wordpress.com. I, I don't think we have a graphic for it. 
I'm sorry about that, but thanks, by the way, for that. And so I, I'm doing a shameful plug because uh, he did write a nice thing about our approach, and it doesn't happen very often these days. Recently, the LDS have excommunicated a woman, Kelly K, for promoting priesthood for women. Talked to a, uh, an LDS guy today. What do you say about women in leadership in the church? And uh, first of all, we have to look at context of Bible. The anciently, women had absolutely no right outside in priesthood authority. Actually, only those from the tribe of, of uh, Levi and Aaron in Kohath had any right to do anything in the temple. Women, if they were trained in the house of Israel, could teach, uh, uh, but they could teach within their family. But essentially, women didn't have any rights uh, in ecclesiastical circles in ancient Israel uh, to speak of. When Jesus came, he leveled the playing field more. Now, so you have to understand, Paul comes in, he's a Jew of Jews, and he's bringing in the Old Testament church, and it's in a confluence with the New Testament gospel. And they have so many cultural difficulties going on with them that he has to lay down some hard and fast rules in his epistles. And he says, look at women. And Paul, Paul, he writes some strong things about women. Don't braid your darn hair. And don't get all dressed up and gussied up. And be submissive to your husbands. And don't talk in church, okay? Maybe with the freedom that they had in Christ among predominantly Jewish converts, the women started spouting off and it created a cultural war that Paul just said, we're gonna stop right here, okay? So we have to take that into context as to why he wrote the things he wrote. But he also wrote, in Christ Jesus, there is neither male nor female, bond nor free, Greek nor Jew. It's all done. All the, the, the dividers between us are gone in Christ Jesus. He writes uh, his laws upon the hearts of women and children and men and Jews and black people and white people and all people of every race, all types. He writes it on their hearts. He converts them, and so there's no division. So I've changed my stance. I don't believe in the cultural application, and I believe if a woman believes that she is called to teach the Word of God, teach it. Teach the Word of God. Now, it's between you and God to know if that, if that call is right, just like it's between a man and God to know if that call is right on his life. But these older things, I know people say, you're not taking the Bible. I am taking it. I'm taking it because if we have a passage that says, uh, there is no difference between Jew and Greek, male and female, in Christ Jesus, sorry buddies, there, there is no priesthood, certainly, and we are all part of the priesthood with Christ being our great high priest, m women and men. Okay, we're going to Levon in Birmingham, Alabama. Levon, you're on Heart of the Matter. Brother Sean, Brother Sean, good to be able to talk to you again. How you doing? Doing well, how are you? Pretty, pretty good. Hey, you old anarchist, you. It's good to hear you challenging things again. Always challenging, my brother. Always challenging. Gotta, gotta do it. Otherwise, you're gonna wind up getting sucked into some other belief system that ain't no good. <laughs> you're right about that. How you been? Been pretty good. I hadn't talked to you since 2012. I tried to get you back here back then, but uh, WDJC was more concerned with getting Romney elected than they were about hearing about Mormonism being a false gospel. Yeah, that happened back then. It's going to be interesting to see what happens again, won't it? Yeah. Uh, I had a few questions for you. Um, one is regarding the pre, what I call the pre-earth pre life. Now, I'm asking this sarcastically. Now, since it, Mormons say that you have to do something, you have to perform some fantastic feat in order to get, you know, gain God's grace for him to do stuff for you, et cetera, et cetera. Here's a, good, here's a question for you. Since, since we all, according to Mormonism, did all these valiant things to gain our material body, um, my question is, what did Mormons do as intelligences, because that's what we were before we were spirit children, according to Mormonism, what did Mormons do as intelligences to deserve to be born as spirit children? Well, I think what they would do is pull from uh, the Pearl of Great Price, where uh, apparently Moses uh, re received, or was it Abraham? I can't remember. Abraham's not as high up in their hierarchy of scripture anymore, but 
what, it's, what scripture says is that God, he looked out and he saw the intelligences. And there were some that were brighter than others. It wasn't a matter of something they did, I don't know. I don't know, maybe they scoured around the universe and gained knowledge somehow and became brighter. So he took- Well, exactly, Brother Sean, but they didn't do anything. That's right, the whole point. Right. Well, they didn't do, do something great to deserve it. Well, back in the day when they would sit around and talk about this kind of stuff, uh, maybe they would say something to the effect that those single intelligent cells must have acquired a, a, a stature of supremacy over the lesser brighter cells to get bright like that because we know that uh, the Pearl of Great Price says that God took the brightest and he made his son be, was the brightest of the brightest. And then on down, grading down to the point where he took the real dull uh, you know, lights and put them together and that's when he made me. Well, it was still by God's choice to decide which ones were born as spirit children. I mean, he didn't have to do it. Yeah, you're right. No. You're right, LaVon. You're right about it, that. Yeah, okay, that's my whole point. It's like if you could, uh, uh, you know, Mormons are so bent on the on the concept that working deserves you a body, then what kind of work did they do as intelligences to deserve their spirit body? Now, the next question is regarding the temple, and I don't want to mon monopolize your time, by the way, obviously, if there's other people calling in. But, and you cut me off any time, but I, these are some really cool questions that uh, I, thought I had about the temple. Okay. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, Lucifer did not ha have a body because he, he was cast out of heaven before he got one, right? Correct. Okay. In that case, how could he have worn an apron? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Got that one. Now. Why didn't Eve didn't get an apron to cover her chest? Okay. Probably required. Something tells me that Eve still probably reflected every woman today. Probably needed an apron for her chest. All right. But anyway. You make me why, smile like my friend Jed. Why would anyone want to copy Lucifer in anything? such as an apron. What, what, let me inform the audience, uh, LaVon, what you're talking about. In the temple- yeah, I heard him laughing. Yeah, in the temple, you guys, what happens is they, um, Satan is wearing an, an apron. And, and they say, what are you wearing? And he says, this is, a, this is an emblem of my power and my priesthoods. And then later on, he says, quick, make you aprons. And, you, and then a voice says, all arise, stand and put up your ap put your apron on. And so you really are following Satan's thing, is what Levon is trying to point out. Why anyone would do it? I don't know. That's one of the one of the best questions that go of what goes on in the temple. Why the LDS would then follow what Satan had done? Now, 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 now brother uh, Sean. Okay, you know how Joseph Smith taught that uh, if it's a, a, a servant or an angel of the Lord delivered a message, that they won't shake hands in order to gain your trust, right? That the angel of heaven won't, right. Right, right, okay. In that case, uh, did you notice that the very first thing that Peter, James, and John did was shake hands with Adam? Oh, yeah. Wow, good one. To gain his trust. Good one. Okay, here you go. Since Peter, James, and John hadn't been yet, how did they appear as their true selves a second time to Adam in the garden? Yeah, good, good, uh, all good questions. You have done some thinking on that stuff I've never thought of. That's really well, I, good. I wish you would. I well, wish you would go back and, and cover the temple again. Instead of just showing the, the uh, instead of just showing it, go back and take it apart. Take some time. I got to be honest. And, and you I, got insight that, that beats man, my, my brother. I know, but, but LaVon, here's my problem. I, I can't. It's really difficult for me to stomach even looking at the thing. It was so difficult yeah. when we played those. I understand. Man, I understand. I mean, when I first listened, I went back and, and watched them. Uh, I discovered that you're back on. Praise the Lord that you're back in the fight, uh, 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 going after Mormonism again. I was so relieved, and it just elevated my spirits so that you hadn't given up on that. Praise God Almighty for that, my brother. Thank you. Thank you so Thanks, much. Thanks, LaVon. We love you. <laughs> 
God bless you. Yeah, okay. But please try to get uh, get uh, back in that and, 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 and tackle the, the, the temple thing if you can. If you, well, anyway, do what you will. All right, my brother. God bless. Love you so much, man. Love you too. Take care. All right, bye-bye. Bye-bye. LeVon sounds like he's equipped to do that. I mean, he, he brings a lot of things to the table. I hope he continues to fall. I should have said that to him. If he calls again, we, we will. Uh, listen, we have uh, what is the direction of the show these days? It's something people are asking. Trying to create a place. LeVon hasn't maybe understood this. For truth seekers to land when the realities of objective religion comes crashing in on them. All the stuff we've been talking about are some of those realities. Truth seekers will stay for a while in a church, and then once those things start, they start scratching their head and say, now what? So listen, I, I am not a any way, shape, or form a prophet or a leader of a new religion, but we've been sold a bill of goods in some, some of these things. And it's not by virtue of people trying to be evil and, and pass it off as something that they know is incorrect, I don't believe. But uh, most believers are not aware of some of this stuff. And the last thing I want to do is pull people from Mormonism and then have them stumble into another place where another bill of goods is sold to them. And then they become heart sick over who God is, who Christ is, and they probably walk all together. Now, you can say you have no grounds for doing this. Well, come to our church sometime and meet the people who come and, and talk to us who are angry over what they've been sold in Mormonism and then in biblical Christianity. We had a former Mormon who was sitting right here in the front row of our church last week. And afterward, he said, you know, I had a pastor uh, stand up and say that dinosaurs were on the ark and uh, God shrunk them down to little bitty size. And those are, that's a bill of goods. And a Mormon, a former Mormon can hear that stuff because a former Mormon was taught that God helped the brother of Jared make little bitty football-sized barges that went under the sea with windows at the top and the bottom and traveled all the way across the ocean that were made out of skin and bones. And we believed it. <laughs> and once, you, once you're like that once, you're, you're gonna be very suspicious of taking that line again. So that's what the purpose of the show is. And we're trying to, to build good faith and not uh, create bad. Sean, what is your view on marriage? <clears throat> I think this is hinting at the gay marriage uh, thing which comes up sometimes, uh, especially in this day and age. First and foremost, oh, I gotta hurry. Jesus said, the children of this world marry and are given in marriage. I take that literally. It's a worldly institution. It is ordained by God uh, uh, for people who cannot contain themselves, but it is a worldly institution, and so I remain silent on the nuances of it. If people are gonna be married in this world, well, however that's gonna work out, I leave that up to God, and whatever is allowed, I leave that in God's hands. Uh, marriage has forever been painted wrongly, in my opinion, by religion. This is one of the things that I think has been sold to us wrongly. The Bible makes it clear, clear what marriage is. It's sex, it's sexual relationships. That's marriage. We have said it's marriage when you gotta stand before a guy and he says words, bull loney. Uh, Adam and Eve, pastors will use them as saying they were, they were never married. They'll say God married them. That's not biblical. Eve was taken from Adam. They were one. That means one in the flesh. That's the picture for a man and a woman who come together later. Abraham, Sarah said, take my handmaiden. And it says later, and he, and he took his wife, Hagar. Who, who, did a guy run out of the hills who was dressed in a suit and say, okay, let me perform this? No. It was when they consummated the relationship. You see, because back in the day, you only consummated when you were committed to that person and they were your one and only. So we have lost that today. We have said marriage is a ceremony that is a performance. So if someone comes to me and says, I want you to marry us and we've been living together, I'll say, I've, you're already married. You want to go through the, 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 the form? Okay, we can do it. You want to have your day? Fine, it's a ceremony, but it doesn't mean anything except by the state. Now, the state's taken uh, over, but in God's eyes, I wish we would teach our kids, when you have sex, the person you've had sex with is the person you're married to. That's God's eyes. No matter what God did, nothing could separate Adam and Eve from being one. They were taken from the same person. 
Eve could have moved to St. Louis. Adam could have moved to Jamaica. They were still married in God's eyes. They were still one. And so when anybody, any two people come together as one, that is marriage. And so that's what you teach the kids. Now I can hear Christians screaming, what? They'll say, but this is my one and only. So hey, let's, I'm going to tell you something even more radical. I do not believe God is offended in the least, in the least, by sexual coming together. In the least, between a girl and a boy, man and a woman. Coming together, no problem. But what he hates, hates, is the tearing apart. And that is why he has us uh, go through whatever we're gonna do now, and that's what you, we can use that for the exam. But it's not the coming together. The sex together is not the evil thing. That's the marriage ceremony. You could be 13 years old and don't go that way. That's the marriage, and if you stay together for life, to God, that's marriage. But it's the tearing, it's the coming together, have the sex and leave and then go to other people and have the sex. That is what he hates. It's such a liberal view, people are terrified of it. So they say, no, you've got to have the official thing to be, for it to be a marriage. That's just the law. It's just the paper. That is not the biblical stance. So hopefully I didn't drive everybody off now. Let's go to Robert in, Robert in Florida. Robert, you're in Heart of the Matter. Hey, Sean, how you doing? Good to see you again. I'm glad you got rid of that purple shirt. That wasn't purple, first of all. that for weeks. Hey, let me tell you something. I am wearing this shirt just because it's uh, the, the purple shirts. I have like four of them, and they're not purple. They're blue. Ah, uh, they were. look purple here. I didn't think you were washing them. I washed them. I over and over again. I, you know, I like doing that sometimes. I just like to wear the same thing every, everywhere, and I wash them every day. They might look terrible, but I do wash them, and it was good. Okay, that's good. What's up, hey, Robert? I have, uh, I have a question. In fact, I was supposed to call you about four or five weeks ago. I, I, I was the one who asked you about the name of Jesus and whether you speak on Jesus or Yeshua. Oh, yeah. Uh, I never got it. You know, I, it's just sometimes my, my schedule is, is such that um, I can't watch you, but I was able to watch you this week. But, you know, I've kind of moved on since then. Oh, but good. My question today is about uh, my wife and I have been we talk about certain things. And one of them is in Acts 2.42. Um, it says, you probably know this, and they continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship and breaking bread and things like that. Yeah. So my question would be, you know, I go on a lot of um, uh, church websites and I see what their doctrine is and they say they follow the, the apostles' doctrine and in fact, you know, the, you know I'm, I, I guess I'm the, I'm the token oneness Pentecostal in your legion of fans, <laughs> so to speak. Um, but, you know, they, you know, even the UTC, their website, you know, they, they, they have, if you put in, in Google Apostle Doctrine, they're one of the first ones that come up. Huh. And yet what they do is they often refer to Romans and Corinthians and Timothy, or First Timothy and Second Timothy, for the Apostles' Doctrine. And it's really kind of, I, just personally, I get kind of perturbed because those are Paul's writings, and they happen way after, you know, Acts 2.42. That's, you know, in the very beginning of the church. And just my assumption would be that the Apostles' Doctrine would be found in the Gospels. You know, from the first book of, of Matthew up to Acts 2.41, everything in between there would be considered the Apostles' Doctrine. And if that's true, then... Where could we find, you know, is it just the teachings of Jesus that they did? Um, I know that, you know, in the, in the oneness view, Acts 2.38 is very important. Uh, Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And I know that you touched on that. You compared Matthew 28.19 versus Acts 2.38, and they, they did actually baptize in the name of Jesus, whether it was under his authority yeah. or anything like that. So that, that's my question. Is Paul part of the Apostles' Doctrine, or is it the teachings of Jesus that can be found in the New Testament? I don't know. It's a good question. I, 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 don't, I, don't, I have to think about it. 
uh, because I know in 1 Corinthians 15, I'm in 1 Corinthians uh, yeah, 15, 1, uh, Paul says, I didn't preach anything but Christ Jesus crucified and everything was Christ. So when it says the apostles' doctrine, that they taught the apostles' doctrine, it's up to speculation as to what exactly that was. But I'd like to have a conversation with you right now, Robert from Florida, we're out of time. Okay. But I can tell you we can get one of those purple shirts if you'd like. <laughs> love you, brother. I, you know, I would, I, I would love one. Um, <laughs> you know, because you know, I can, I can walk into church on Sunday and say, you know, I listen, I listen to Sean. He's about ninety-eight percent UTC oneness anyway. Yeah, so <laughs> you've I, said that before. I said, well, you know, you're not. I'm not saying that you're that you would ever go into a UPC church, but you're camped out on the front lawn. <laughs> in terms of doctrine, and you're there, you got your I've never your studied it. So. Campfire, and you're roasting your marshmallows and your little wieners out there. So. <laughs> That's you're, probably well put. You know, you're, uh, you're there. <laughs> Thank you so much, Robert. God bless you. God bless you too. Thanks. All right, bye bye. Sorry, we're out of time. Overtime. Going to take some editing. We love you guys. Keep searching for truth. Test all things. Uh, hold fast to what is good. The Lord is with us, loves us, loves you. We'll see you next week on Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride, going nowhere. I am an existential cowboy on the wind. And I won't become This man's awake, a storm's arising, the dawn's awaiting till a hundred monkeys know. And I can feel the light-filled monkeys start 